You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am really excited to have one of my favorite authors on the show. Don Winslow is here today, and he has a brand new book that, when you're hearing this, is available everywhere. You can go grab it at your local bookstore, or we'll have links down in the show notes to make it easy. The new book is called City on Fire, and if you're a fan of Don Winslow the way I am – you know that this is uh, a must-have if you're a crime fiction fan. Uh, Don has done it yet again for his 21st novel, I believe it is, and it, it, it just gets better and better and better if you can believe that. Welcome to the show, Don. Oh, thanks, Hank, and thanks for the kind words, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> you're so welcome. Uh, Don, before we get started, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Yeah, good one. You know, I I grew up, my, my dad was a sailor who was an inveterate reader, and my mom was a librarian. And so there are always books around the house. But I would have to say that my first memory of wanting to be a writer was at about age seven or eight. And I was reading, there was a series of books called You Were There. And it was always about a boy and a girl. And they were there at, at some sort of historical event, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Johnstown Flood. I'm sorry. I think I, rem- I think I remember that series. Do you? Yeah. I think. Uh, I, yeah. And and I could read. Yeah, I could remember like reading the one about Gettysburg, and thinking, uh, yeah, boy, wouldn't it be great if I could tell stories like this? If I could be a writer. That's fantastic. Um, you know, if uh, if you if you think about the family that we come from. Uh, it, it's, you know, you, you, if you, if you, you know, believe that, that we are a product of our, uh, upbringing and, you know, our family lineage, um, having one parent as a sailor and another parent as a librarian, that's, that's a pretty fantastic place to come from. Well, it is because my dad, you know, was a rock and tour. He was a great storyteller in addition to being a great reader and, Oh, yeah. My God. He and his Navy buddies, you know, would get together and start telling stories and I would just sit and listen and be fascinated. Uh, The other thing, you know, it's it's funny because my I have one sibling, an older sister, who's also a professional novelist. And so two kids in the family, both of whom became writers. (laughs) That's incredible. That's incredible. Um, And, uh, you know, looking back over your uh, your bio. Um, Don, you know, as as someone who grew up in that sort of setting and had this early inkling that he wanted to be a writer, then, of course, your path uh, would take you to college in the Midwest to study about Africa. What what other path would there be? <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Are you expressing some sort of surprise there? <laughs> <laughs> what what drew you I, to the continent of Africa? To- Oh, boy. Um, Originally, a book called Something of Value by Robert Rourke that my dad turned me on to. I think I was maybe 12 or 13 years old. And um, look, it's dated now. You reread it. It has its its problems. I think it was a, you know, a a product of its time. But uh, it was about Kenya and and safari guides in Kenya and what eventually became known as the Mau Mau um, revolution, you know, the Kenya's drive for independence. Uh, and I thought right then and there, man, I, I'm going to Africa. You know, I, I want to do that. 
So um, you you traveled all over the world, eventually settled in New York um, to pursue your passion of writing. Uh, did you move to New York specifically to become a writer? Oh, sure. Like so many other people, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I, I finished um, I finished my undergraduate degree in, in African history, which makes you a hardcore unemployable. And uh, I spent a little time up in northern Idaho um, delivering salad dressing, believe it or not, to various restaurants. As one and, does. And then I moved to New York, you know, as one does, yeah. um, to to become a and, and of course, you know, I was a starving writer uh, within days uh, and uh, got a job managing movie theaters. Wow. Um, you know, the, what is the what is the, um, the there's a romantic ideal of moving to New York to become a writer? Mm-hmm. Is that because the publishing industry has been. Uh, rooted in in New York for so long. Is, is there some other draw to that that brings writers to New York, or is it just because that's where the hub of publishing tends to be? I think it's mostly because that's where publishing is. You know, I grew up about oh, two and a half hours by train north of the city in a little town in Rhode Island uh, where the book's set. Uh, and, you know, man, I used to love the, the rare chances I had to get on that train, though, as a kid and go to that city, you know, with the buildings and the streets and the movies and the, the theater and all of that. But I think that there is a romantic notion, at least among writers of, of my generation, you know, about about going to New York and getting published and, and meeting that great editor. Now, many years later, I realized that romantic ideal. Uh, I I was doing a book with the late great Sonny Mehta at Knopf, and I, I'll never forget it. Getting on the train uh, to go down to New York to meet Sonny at his apartment and sit up all night at the kitchen table with the manuscript in front of us and debating and arguing and and working on the book, and then uh, finishing it and walking out onto the streets of Manhattan at dawn, you know. And I felt like, man, I, I had that quintessentially romantic writer experience then, you know? Wow. The, is that something that still happens in publishing? You know, the um, the relationship with an editor like that where you do uh, kind of toil and, and hammer at the manuscript and, and argue back and forth about whether this character is working in this situation? Or is that something that still happens or is that – kind of fading faded into a romantic ideal you know i think it still happens but i think you know certainly editors edit no no question about it and and there's always the dialogue you know with the writer of course but anymore uh, and part of this of course is covid i i think it's it's more remote you know um it's it's via email it's via phone uh where back in the day, you know, you you literally sat down with these folks, you know, and it had a, a different kind of feeling to it, I think. Yeah. Um, as as writers, um, you you look at life experience and think that no life experience is uh, is invalid or is 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 not valuable that, um, uh, you know, we can draw from. Uh, the most odd places to for a character to come out or, or whatever. Um, you know, having a, a degree in, in African history, you said makes you, you know, immediately unemployable. Um, but do you do you ever pull on that experience? Do, has has that ever benefited you uh, in your writing? And uh, you know, has it ever come back uh, to to inform something that you're working on? Not directly, uh, but, you know, I I went on from there and worked for several years as a a safari guide on photographic safaris. And there were certain, I think, skills that you honed of uh, on that job of observation, uh, of detail, because that 
was what it was all about to to get your clients in a position to find those animals and photograph them you you, you had to develop a certain you know body of knowledge and a certain way of observing the world uh and and i i really do think that that, that helped me down the road in the writing yeah um a lot of uh writers especially in your genre uh love to develop series characters recurring characters that um that, that readers can can lock on to and uh you know feel uh, some sort of connection to and, and follow along from book to book and and that benefits writers in, in a lot of ways um you know it also puts up some uh some blocks in a in a sort of way because if you have a main series character you as the reader you know that that character is going to be mostly safe from book to book. You may do, you know, a, a little torture here and there, but we know they're going to show back up next book to to take right. on, you know, a new challenge or whatever. Um, looking back over your catalog, I'm I don't think you have any recurring characters. Do are all twenty something of oh. your books standalones? Uh, no. My my, in fact, my first five books uh, mm. were a series, uh, okay, the Neil okay. Carey series, because I was reading the same stuff that you're alluding to. You know, when I was thinking about doing this, and you know, I, I was reading, you know, obviously Chandler and and the McDonalds, right. but but also, of course, you know, Robert Parker and and other folks, and I just thought, well, that's what you do. You know, uh, and so when I started uh, my first book, I think it's called A Cool Breeze on the Underground. You know, I intended that to be a series and it went for five books. Uh, later on, you know, I, I did this. Uh, people sort of refer to it as the drug trilogy or the cartel trilogy. These these three right. big books on the Mexican drug cartels. And there were, you know, that featured a, a guy named Art Keller through those three books and there were a lot of recurring characters and then <clears throat> sorry um in this trilogy you know we'll follow a guy named danny ryan all the way through and, and a lot of the other characters uh, you know i love those series you know i i don't think i could tell you for instance the plot of one spencer novel <laughs> and yet I, I i read them all right. and you just want to hang out with those people in that place you know, uh, right. the plot and, is I, and I think there's a certain comfort in no. Yeah, the plot is Spencer. The plot is Spencer and Susan and Hawk in the kitchen, you know. Right. And and they're so beautifully right. written and you, you just want to be with those people, you know. So I think there's a, a lot of value to those series. You know, I love them. I, I found that after five books, I was getting bad at it. You know, uh, that um, <laughs> and uh, and I, I I wanted to move on and, and do something different. But, uh, boy, I love that genre, you know, and there's so many, yeah. you know, great writers who've done. Them. Yeah. Yeah. You uh, you during your time in New York, you spent uh, time as a as a private investigator. Is that right? <laughs> That's Correct. Yeah, sure did. I, I I would imagine some of those experiences uh, informed your writing. Yeah, you know, uh, well, absolutely. Look, I, I think more though in terms of of attitude and ways of looking at the world. You know, right. Uh, uh, I rarely would take any of the cases that I worked on and turn them into books. So there's a reason. It's called private investigator, you know, right, as opposed right. to public investigator. Uh, but, you know, one of one of the jobs that I had was was tracking runaways, trying to find runaways. And I certainly used that experience in a fictional way in my first book, Cool Breeze on the Underground, which is about a guy who's sent to London to, to find a missing teenage girl. Uh but it was more, you know, listen, when when I was a private investigator, I started in Times Square in New York uh, before Mickey Mouse got there. So it was <laughs> dirty. It was gritty. It was dangerous. You know, uh, it was sad. And Hank, I have to confess that I have a certain nostalgia for that. You know, um, I kind of miss the, the soulfulness of it. Um and and some of the adrenaline rush of it later in life uh i went back to that field 
mostly but not exclusively in California, but at, at a higher level, you know, uh, I was mostly interviewing witnesses and and helping law firms get ready for trials and that kind of thing. So my my street work at that point was was pretty much over. Um, I, I think uh, I, I'm glad you um, um, talked about the you know, the difference between private investigation and public investigation and, and you know, kind of made a joke about that. But I think a, a lot of new writers, uh, you know, are looking for life experiences that they can then springboard into, um, you know, a fiction writing career. And, and they I think they focus too much on um on looking for a situation that they can record and, and tell their view on instead of just letting life experiences um, it inform the, the way they see things or, you know, that letting their imagination run wild with this information that they have. Um, as a writer who has, you know, obviously experienced a lot of these uh sorts of things or, or, you know, been closely connected with some of these people. Um, how do you prevent, uh, real life from seeping into your stories and, and just allowing your imagination to, to be free? I have to remind myself of that. You know, my, my education is as a historian and, and so I tend to be maybe a, a bit pedantic when I'm writing, particularly in early drafts, or thinking that I have to be too faithful to the real life situations that I'm drawing on. And so every once in a while, I, I kind of have to hit myself, you know, up alongside the head and say, hey, Don, you're writing a novel. You're allowed to use your imagination. You're allowed to create. You're you're allowed to reorder some things in chronology to to make the structure of the novel better you know uh but you know the, yeah I, I i really do i have to make an effort because i always think well i have to include every incident right yeah. <laughs> you know to be thorough as one would have done when you were investigator you know when preparing investigative reports right you, you're not going to leave anything out you know uh but but then realize no 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 hold on you're writing a novel. It has to have a certain kind of, of structure to it so that it's friendly to the reader. And, you know, and so it's a matter of kind of snapping my head back and reminding myself. I, I really share your point, though, about a lot of aspiring writers, you know, because I want to say the same and do say the same thing to them. It's just let loose, you know, just wail away on that keyboard and see what happens, you know? Yeah. Um, Don, one of the one of the things that I love to hear writers talk about is the moment of creation or the moment of inspiration. Um, and I'll I'll explain what I'm uh, what I'm asking is it, with a book like City on Fire. Um, at one moment, it does not exist in any form fashion. Um, it just doesn't exist. And then either a character walks onto the stage of your mind and, and you're like, well, who is this and what, what are they up to? And, and, and you know, the, a scene starts to unfold, you know, based around this character. Or maybe you're reading, um, you know, a newspaper article and, you know, the, the imagination starts firing off. Or maybe you're watching a documentary or, you know, this, this novel, um, you know, we, we travel back in time to the 80s and 90s, uh, the, the 1980s and, and 1990s. And, you know, maybe there's there's something about that time period that, um, you know, that that starts to erupt. And and then in that moment, City on Fire does exist in, in some form. And then it's up to you as the writer to start excavating um, that story and to dig to dig out who these characters are and what what they're up to. Um, what is that first moment of inspiration usually like for you? Wow, that's a that's quite a question. It's it's almost always character. It's almost always a person, you know. Uh, in 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 this case, you know, there there was sort of a a twofold inspiration for these books. One was my past childhood, the growing up in in New England at a time when there were was a lot of mob violence and conflict. 
And then the other was reading the, the Greek and Roman classics. Um, and I started to read the Iliad and it reminded me, I know this is, sounds a little crazy, so much of the New England crime wars, even even the the incident that touched it all off. Uh, the sort of the Helen of Troy thing had very modern parallels. And so my imagination began to go to what other parallels are there? And and then I just had this guy, Danny Ryan, um, had this image of him lying on a beach uh, where I grew up and seeing this woman come out of the water uh, and knowing somehow that that moment was going to change everything but I didn't know how uh, and so it, it really was a matter of kind of living with him for really for years I wrote that first chapter 27 years ago oh, wow. uh, and then yeah 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 uh, I've put this thing you know down and picked it up numerous times over those years uh, because it just kept calling to me, you know, sometimes you, you write something and you think, yeah, nice first chapter can't go anywhere, you know, fun afternoon, I guess. Uh, but this just kept coming back and back and back saying, do something, do something with it. And, and so finally I did, you know, but those moments, I don't know how to explain them. I wrote a, a novella, uh, called the San Diego zoo, based on a sentence that was running in my mind for years uh the sentence was nobody knows how the chimp got the revolver <laughs> I, I had no clue what that meant you know mm. it was just in my head literally for years and i kind of chuckle at it you know and then one day i sat down and thought all right how did the chimp get the revolver <laughs> you know and then just made it up as i went along you know, I uh, swear to God, I was writing that novella and I didn't know what happened until it happened. Those are those are the fun parts of of, of being a writer, that that moment of almost silly inspiration that then becomes yeah. a living, breathing, a living, breathing thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my first book, A Cool Breeze on the Underground, was was similar. Uh, I was working in London. And uh, was down in the, the subway, you know, the tube. Yeah. It, it was the hottest summer in recorded English history. And I'm sweating down there in the Tottenham Square tube station. And inexplicably, a cool breeze came up through the, the tunnel. Wow. And I had this phrase, a cool breeze wow. on the underground. Uh, again, never associating it with, with anything. But eventually, when I decided, OK, I'm going to get serious, I'm going to sit down and write a book, that title came back to me. And so then it inspires questions. Well, who's on the underground to feel the cool breeze? Why is he there? What's he doing? Who is he? You know, um, and all those great questions that we get to ask, you know, started to flesh themselves out. Uh, and, you know, eventually, I think it was about three years later, I had a book. Fifteen publishers disagreed, but uh, <laughs> eventually, eventually someone published it, you know. It's it's so funny to, to look back at, um, you know, different people's publishing stories because, you know, most everyone has – uh, you know, we've done over 1,200 episodes of this show, and um, there have been uh -huh. a handful of, of authors, I mean a handful, um, who wrote a manuscript, and then just everyone was clamoring to get their hands on that manuscript. Um, there, there are a few of those people, yeah. but a very few. Yeah, sure. You know, and and we we love to to um, uh, to kind of say, ah, you know, look – the the publishing industry they they didn't know what they were talking about you know this thing that was rejected 40 times went on to sell four bajillion copies you know and mm -hmm. yeah i mean that there's some of that 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 is deserved but um you know sometimes you, you can't blame an industry for for not being able to see what's around the corner and and you know thank god that that readers get to um 
you know, vote with their money, I guess. Yeah, you know, I never got angry. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah. I would just, I'd get the rejection letters. A lot of people save them, which I, I do not understand, you know, why you would collect them. Uh, I would just crumple them up and throw them away and keep on writing. Uh, uh, I had read somewhere in those days that one out of every 10,000 people who put writer down on their tax form make a living at it. Yeah. don't know if that's true or not. But I, I remember saying to myself, I'm very sorry, sincerely sorry for the other 9,999. But in this life, that's my slot. Right. So while the whole publishing industry, including the publishers I've been with since, were rejecting the first Neil Carey novel, I was writing the second one. Mm. Things We Never Got Over. The new book by best-selling author Lucy Score, Bearded Bad Boy Barber Knox, refers to live his life the way he takes his coffee, alone, unless you count his basset hound Waylon. Knox doesn't tolerate drama even when it comes in the form of a stranded runaway bride. Naomi wasn't just running away from her wedding. She was riding to the rescue of her estranged twin to knock him out Virginia, a rough-around-the-edges town where disputes are settled the old-fashioned way with fist and beer usually in that order too bad for naomi her evil twin hasn't changed at all after helping herself to naomi's car and cash tina leaves her with something unexpected the niece naomi didn't know she had now she's stuck in town with no car no job no plan and no home with an 11 year old going on 30 to take care of there's a reason Knox doesn't do complications or high-maintenance women, especially not the romantic ones. But since Naomi's life imploded right in front of him, the least he can do is help her out of her jam. And just as soon as she stops getting into new trouble, he can leave her alone and get back to his peaceful, solitary life. At least that's the plan until the trouble turns to real danger. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. An Innocent Client, the first book in the Joe Dillard legal thriller series. A preacher is found brutally murdered in a Tennessee motel room. A beautiful, mysterious young girl is accused. In this best-selling debut, criminal defense lawyer Joe Dillard has become jaded over the years as he's tried to balance his career against his conscience. Savvy but cynical, Dillard wants to quit doing criminal defense, but he can't resist the chance to represent someone who might actually be innocent. His drug-addicted sister has just been released from prison and his mother is succumbing to Alzheimer's. But Dillard's commitment to the case never wavers despite the personal troubles and professional demands that threaten to destroy him. Chosen by BookBub readers as one of the top 100 crime novels of all time, get started on this great series with an innocent client where it all started. Read for free with Kindle Unlimited or buy it in paperback or audiobook. An Innocent Client by Scott Pratt. You, you know, and, and that's the attitude you have to have, isn't it? That, that uh, you know, I, I interviewed um, Brandon Sanderson, the, the uh, famous uh, fantasy author several years ago. And he, mm-hmm. um, I, I think he was writing his 13th novel when, um, when his first one finally sold. I think it was like the seventh that he had written when it finally yeah. sold. And and he said, what you don't understand is that I I was a writer, uh, whether anyone believed me or not and, and chose to publish that. That's a whole other thing. Um, he said, I was a writer. And if no one would have published it, then I would have just kept writing novels for my own uh, enjoyment. And, you know, when when I'm old and, and died, my kids were going to inherit a house that was full of you know, manuscript stuffed in every closet because that's that's yeah. just the reality of it. And I think at some point you have to kind of find some peace with that decision. Like this is what I'm going to do. If 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 no one else realizes how great I am, then you know their loss. Yeah, I I'm so glad you said that because I say this to to aspiring writers all the time. 
I say to them, if you sit down and you struggle with the empty page, or I guess it's the blank screen now, on a regular basis and you make an effort at it and you write, you are a writer. We're colleagues. You have my respect. You are a writer and don't let anyone ever take that away from you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Don, you, you talked about City on Fire and the um, uh, the the ancient stories that uh, that you started seeing similarities with. I, I think King Solomon said at first that there's nothing new under the sun. And, and mm-hmm. that's that's really funny um, the way human nature comes back around and around and around. You know, they're they're only, you know, a handful of story types in the world and we just find new ways of of telling those stories over and over um what uh you know after 20 something novels uh have come out how do you continue to find inspiration and and how do you how do you remain a happy person uh when writing you know (laughs) some stories that are you know about some of the worst parts of human nature yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are tough questions. Listen, I I have never had a problem with with inspiration or finding things to write about. The world is just too fascinating. I think that the the opposite problem exists. You know, is there's so much to write about and only so much time. And what do you choose? Right. You know, uh, so. Right. You know, that that's more the issue for me uh, on the second question. Look, you know, there was a while that that was rough. I, I spent uh, 23 years writing about the Mexican drug cartels and the war on drugs and addiction and, you know, and and all of that. And the research for that was hard. Yeah, um, it, it was brutal. Yeah. Uh, and writing those scenes because um those books in many ways are virtually documentaries. There's nothing in them that didn't actually happen in one form or another. Uh, so, yeah, that that became a bit of a problem. You know, in fact, after I wrote the first in that, I never intended to write a trilogy, by the way. And and after I wrote the first book in what is now the trilogy, uh, I swore I wouldn't write another one. Wow. Uh, and then I ended up writing a book called The Cartel which described probably the most horrifically violent era in Mexico. And after that, I I promised everybody, myself, I promised my wife that I would not write another one. Uh, And then I went on and wrote the the third and final uh, called The Border uh, because I felt that uh, I had a responsibility in a sense to, to bring that story home and to write about America um and so you know i did uh but uh yeah you know it it was sort of almost a matter of of separating yourself at the end of the day you know taking a break and going for a walk or something before i went home because i didn't want to bring that stuff home right you know and and i was somewhat used to that in my life as an investigator you know that you you had certain kind of cases and there's no need for us to discuss them here, but uh, there's nothing you're going to bring home to your wife and your kid, you know? Uh, And so you you just had to make this almost physical effort um, to kind of cleanse yourself and, and come home and think, okay, now I'm a husband and a father, you know? (laughs) Um, How do you, how do you go about doing, research for for books like that and i'm i'm sure city on fire was a little different because it it is a a historical setting um even yeah. though you know a, a setting that that i remember uh too well from my adulthood so i hate to call it a historical setting um but, yeah. you know not to tell our age <laughs> or anything um but um, oh, yeah, yeah. you know uh, but when when you're like the the Mexican drug cartels, um, how does a novelist? Um, you, how do you start? Because you said you know a lot of those things did happen, uh, you know, in one uh, you know in one way or another. How how do you get close enough to to get you know real facts to make it oh. believable? Uh, you know, from your comfy writing chair. It changed over the years. Um, 
when I wrote the first one, I had no knowledge or interest for that matter in, in drug trafficking. And when I started to write the book, um, I was just looking for answers for myself. So I started reading history and then I would read journalism and then I would read documents. Uh, and when I felt I had sort of enough of a baseline knowledge, then I went out and started talking to people. And that was a matter of networking you know, finding someone who'd be willing to talk to you who might pass you on to somebody else. Um, writing the second book, everything changed because of social media and the internet. Because when I was writing the first book, the cartels were trying to disguise what they did. By the early 2000s, they were proclaiming what they did. They, they put it out, you know, on the net. And and you could follow the drug wars almost the way you'd follow a baseball season. You know, now I, of course, still went out and talked to people and went to locations and all of that kind of thing. But it was a very, very different kind of, of an era um, in an almost evil sense, you know. I mean, these guys would, would do horrible things, make videos of them and, and you know, email them to you. Yeah. Wow. Um, with with a novel like City on Fire, your your new novel, um, you know when when you're you kind of have the inspiration for it, and, and you start seeing a connection um, with with ancient stories, and start seeing a a contrast, but not just a contrast, almost a juxtaposition of 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 modern life with ancient life, and and you start seeing the the uh, the same human problems that have come around for you know generation mm-hmm. upon generation. Um, how do you start preparing for a book like this? And and was it uh, uh, the the setting you know in the 1980s and 1990s? Um, what was it that that was uh, that was so intentional about that time period? Yeah, I knew that I was going to stay with this character for 15 to 20 years of his life. And so I was looking around at what was happening on the American crime scene, and I knew I needed a certain chunk of time that would reflect what I wanted to write about. And so that meant starting it in the 1980s. Also, that, that worked out nicely because that was an era when the mafia was in decline, was starting its really steep downhill pitch. And I think that the decline of things is quite interesting to write about, you know, uh, and, and so that, that, that worked out well. Uh, also, you know, it, the research for that book, a lot of it, of course, was learning more about the classics, listening to lectures, reading scholarly works, literary criticism, and that kind of thing to get a, a deeper understanding of those themes that you alluded to. Uh, the rest of it was the realm of memory. You know, I, I lived there half the year, uh, and so a lot of it was a matter of walking out the door and making a short drive. The the scenes in that book are intimate to me, uh, and and then it was a matter of of remembering those years and and what they were like and and those people. You know, so it's a very different experience from doing, let's say, the the drug trilogy. When when you start envisioning a story, uh, Don, like like you knew that you wanted to follow this character for a a, a big chunk of his life, um, do you start planning out the story before you start drafting? Do, do you have an arc um, that that you you know see this character following, and and maybe you don't have all of the the scenes shaded in and all of that, but but is there a, a roadmap that you follow? Not really. Um, you know, in this sense, look, the roadmap was kind of the Aeneid. I had three broad strokes, and I don't want to give away too much in the first book. Yeah. You know, but I I, I knew that, that this guy was going to have to leave his home. I knew that he was going to have to wander, and I knew that he was going to have to build his own empire all the time that he's trying to leave his past behind him. That's what I had, you know, yeah. and and then it was a matter of finding the modern parallels that that made sense. You know, I mean, what would a Trojan horse be in 1987? Right. I had to find that. Uh, 
Aeneas on his wanderings, for instance, <clears throat> is shipwrecked and uh, off the shore. He walks into a cave and he sees uh, murals of the Trojan War, sees himself, sees his late friend, sees his late wife, sees his home. What's the modern equivalent of that? So the second book is set primarily in Hollywood because that would be the modern equivalent of that, a film. <laughs> uh, what sort of empire is he going to build in the 1990s? You know, right. uh, and so the, the third book takes him to Las Vegas to build a casino empire. Uh, so those are the broad, broad strokes. And I follow other characters, too, you know, uh, Helen and Cassandra and Aphrodite and Agamemnon and Odysseus, all in the, in the modern criminal world. Now, I hasten to add that you can read these books with no interest, knowledge or reference to the classics at all. I think you can enjoy these books uh, just as contemporary crime novels, you know. Uh, but they they take their themes from these classics. It, it's funny that y you start seeing um, uh, a, a, a shadow of the hero's journey um, almost. And, you know, this this yeah. this classic um, story structure that we of you know, mm -hmm. following a character's growth and, and challenges and and uh, and and all of that. Is, is it exciting to you? When you start to make those connections, you know, when when you're when you're comparing uh, modern history to the Iliad and, and start, um, you know, seeing ways that you can connect that, does that invigorate you and, and get you excited about the project? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you, you get these eureka moments, you know, like when I first figured out what the Trojan horse would be and I don't want to give it away. I was like, yes, that's <laughs> it. I can write that. That makes sense. You know, the same with the, the murals and a cave wall, you know, right. <laughs> like what's that? But then I go, bam, film. Yes, that's exciting. And that brings me to a world that I know and that I think people are going to enjoy spending time in. Uh, and and so, yeah, it's it's absolutely exciting to do that. I just hope it's exciting to read, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I've read the book. Um, I got an early arc and then uh, I got a, a, a finished hardcover. Um, I guess about a week or two ago from your publisher and and I, I flipped through it again and just kind of relived some of the moments of the book and uh, so much fun. Uh, and even though it's, it's, you. You know, it's, it's it's kind of grim subject matter in a lot of ways, it's so much fun. Um, how, how do you balance those, uh, you know, kind of the worst parts of human nature with making yeah. it, you know, uh, epically readable, you know, that, that you just keep wanting to turn the pages to find out what these characters are up to. Well, I think, I think that's life, isn't it? I mean, I think that reflects reality yeah. in the sense that we're, we're constantly, you know, on, on that, that high wire between tragedy and comedy, you know, <laughs> uh, right. we have to laugh. God, we didn't laugh. Hank, what will we do? Exactly. You know, I mean, these past few years, man. Yeah. If we didn't laugh, I don't know what. Um, I think on the on the sort of technical creative question you asked, um, in early drafts, I just write, I just wail away as fast as I can, as if I'm afraid of being caught. <laughs> uh, as I get into later drafts, more and more I have the reader in mind. You know, we sometimes forget that reading is a physical as well as intellectual activity. It's it's visual and it's oral because we hear it. We hear those words, we see the page. And so I'm trying to shape the words and shape the page and shape the pacing to give the reader the, the best possible experience, you know? So very early drafts, it's a completely selfish activity. Um, and in the late drafts, though, all I'm thinking about is what's the reader seeing, what's the reader hearing, what's the reader feeling. Don, we know that writing can be a very solitary uh, pursuit and that most writers spend the vast majority of their working time, uh, 
you know, locked in a in, in an office by themselves and or, or maybe they go to a, a coffee shop so that they can be around people, but they're not interacting with anyone. They're maybe listening, observing, but but typing, you know, and it's it can be very mm-hmm. uh, inward focused. Let's just put it that way. Um, what do you do to make sure that you stay connected uh, with a community of some sort, um, you know, maybe it's other writers that you are, are bouncing ideas off of, or maybe it's just sharing some some inspiration, some encouragement, or or maybe it's just staying connected to family. But but what does what does community mean to you in uh, in 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 a line of work that can be so solitary? Yeah, you know, I, I I often say, you know, I spend almost all day with people who don't actually exist, you know, uh, chasing ideas that didn't. And happen. they do everything I tell them to. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You know, and if, if they don't do what I tell them to, I delete them, you know, right, right. And, uh, the world doesn't work that way. Listen, family obviously is key. I've been married, you know, to the same person for for 37 years. Yeah. Um, and she's not going to put yeah. up with my editing her, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, she will not do what I say, you know, and I can't retype her, you know, uh, I think but, I'm married um, to the same woman. Uh, you know, I, I, yeah, it could be. It sounds like it. I, um, <laughs> you know, I used to do a lot of volunteering in schools. Um, and I, uh, you know, uh, I might do that some more. Uh, I started a, a Shakespeare program here in our little rural town in California, Shakespeare for elementary school kids. Nice. Um, they perform nice. actual Shakespeare plays, you know, scaled down, but all of Shakespeare's original language. And that's been going on for, I want to say this is the 26th year. Wow. I think I directed it for its first 10, but I, I write, you know, I, I do the adaptations. Um, I directed high school musicals for six years. Not that I'm a huge fan, but that's what the kids wanted to do. You know, uh, we live in a sort of a resource poor town. And so I think volunteerism is important. Sure. Uh, I, I'm pretty active politically on Twitter. So that's sort of a larger, I think, kind of community, you know, that my my partner Shane Salerno and I are talking to all the time, seeing friends, you know, and I, I think that COVID has enforced a, a kind of a different view for us on these things. You know, it didn't change my work life a lot because, as you said, you know, we spend it all locked up anyway. Right. But then, you know, not being able to have dinner with dear friends or, you know, go out or or whatever, go to a freaking movie, you know. Yeah. Uh I think we're looking at those things a little differently now, aren't we? You know, like what what's really valuable? How do we want to spend our time? You know? Yeah. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I get out. But, you know, the, the sad truth is you're, you're absolutely right. You know, most of the time we spend alone. Uh, and, you know, most of my reading is research reading. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's an issue. The new book, City on Fire, when you're hearing this, is available everywhere. Uh, We're going to put links to it uh, where you can grab it in Kindle edition or hardcover or audiobook. Um, Don, I've just recently gotten into your audiobooks. Um, I've read a number of your uh, hardcovers throughout the years, but, um, you know, uh, to to be able to to keep up with with a show like this, I have to listen to a lot of audiobooks while I'm doing other things. And, and I've just discovered this whole new world for your books um, in audio. What, have you heard any of the of, of the pre-release uh, of City on Fire in audio? Yeah, it's terrific. Yeah. I love yeah, it. Yeah. What do you think yeah. about having it's, your work translated to audio? It's flattering. It's, it's, it's fun. It's flattering. I, I know that a lot of people get their reading done. Uh, I don't mean that in any negative sense, you know, while they're taking trips, while they're doing other things. I think it's a great thing, you know, and and of course, that's where storytelling began, you know, the cavemen went out and they killed a mastodon and then they came back and they they narrated the story around the fire. Um, And and so I'm all for it. 
Well, if you uh, if you want to experience the audiobook as well, we'll have a link in the show notes uh, where you can grab it at Audible. Uh, Don, this has been so much fun chatting. I love the new book. I know that everyone else is going to as well. Uh, we're going to have links in the show notes, like I said. But if people are, are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? Uh, you know, uh, donwinslow.com, and I'm on Twitter. Excellent. What, what's your so Twitter there's a website, donwinslow.com. Uh, Don Winslow, yeah. Great, great. We'll link that up as well. Uh, Don, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. I enjoyed the conversation. You know, it's just fun. So nice to talk with you, Hank. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series. On Walpurgis night, when the moon is high, hell's bells ring and witches must answer. They dapple their breasts with rendered fat of murdered babes, straddle their brooms and take to the sky, as the devil wills, to speed through dreamy midnight air to the summit of the Brockenberg, that haunted peak shrouded in swirling mists, where a glen of gnarled limbs and wan moonlight awaits to host their debauches and blasphemies. Now to the Brocken the witches ride, the stubble is gold and the corn is green, there shall the carnival's sabbath be seen, and the devil shall come to preside. The accuser elopes from the bowels of hell, a sure-footed, goat-headed, many-horned beast with cloven hooves and a staff of bone. He perches upon the witch altar to brood in cerulean half-light, a winged silhouette with watchful red eyes. The witches gather and bow to their master, upon his charred rump give the shameful kiss, then imps beat the drum and a round dance begins. Lash yourselves into frenzy, hags. Pass the chalice of pure marrow broth. Whip the ground with your hair. Tread the sky with your feet. Dance with joined hands around Satan's cold fire. Then find out a nook of nettles and moss and lay with the rough-skinned beast of your choosing, suckling some rancid teat of desire. But hist! The cock crows, away, away, gather your tatters and broomsticks and wits, back to your huts, to your thresholds and hearths, and become once more, at the red break of day, the furtive adder in your neighbor's garden. The ghost host of the Salem Sorcery Tour, dazzling in his steampunk Victorian morning crepe, let the spell he'd woven trail through the twilight air like a hag across the moon, then chirped, isn't that silly? And bowed, sweeping the wet grass with his satin-ribboned top hat. The tour group gave a polite round of applause. Nobody believes that stuff today, but the Puritans sure did. They took witches very seriously. If they went down in the morning and bought eggs and one was rotten, surely the devil had come in the night, gone boop, tee-hee-hee, then scampered off on his little hooves. And who's in league with the devil? Witches. We're taught that the Puritans were super nice and cute with little buckles on their hats, but it's not the case, folks. They were fanatics. Witch hunts don't happen in a healthy society. They hated kids. They hated women. They were crazy. And that craziness. He turned on the spot, casting a protective circle around the stone garden of the witch memorial. Got these people killed 